Hello, everyone. This is Nahum Siegel, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent guests and interviews featured on JM in the AM. We start this week with Dr. Norman Blumenthal from OHEL. He joined us to discuss the effects of COVID-19 on our community. Dr. Norman Blumenthal, a recent guest on JM the AM, now on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Dr. Norman Blumenthal is with us. We've asked him to come on because, uh, first of all, beginning of a school year, beginning of a brand new year, and everyone trying to get into somewhat of a regular routine after all these months of uh, continued COVID situation. Um, plus, it's Mansim Chosenu, yet our brothers and sisters in Israel are in complete lockdown. And <laughs> My friend Shlomo Katz told me that... Uh, they announced on the radio, no Ushpizen this year. And they were serious. They were using the word Ushpizen as if, you know, it's a, it's the word for guests. But obviously the real Ushpizen, I guess, <laughs> still can come to the sukkah. Please, God. Um, and here in the U.S. and in so many other places around the world, uh, it's going to be a stranger, more unusual sukkah, just like so many of our Yom Tovim have been over the last few months. Dr. Norman Blumenthal is the... Um, Director of Trauma, Bereavement, and Crisis Response Team at OHEL, and he joins us live via telephone. Dr. Blumenthal, Shana Tova, happy, healthy, sweet new year. A Gamar Tov to you from all of us here at JM in the AM. Thank you, and to all of you. <laughs> Appreciate that very much. You know, I think what prompted the um, uh, my request to get you on specifically this week uh, as the school year now, again, depending on which school it is and which school system it is, has been in effect somewhere from you know a couple of weeks till maybe a month, a month and a half, depending again on how things are in different cities. Um, you know, we we turn the page, we get to five, seven, eight, one, we get to a brand new school year. Many of us think we're literally turning a page, turning over a new leaf, a getting a fresh start, and yet, Doctor Blumenthal. <laughs> As we try to do all that, we realize that the same COVID situation, even more of a serious one than a couple of months ago, exists in our community and in the entire world. And and unlike mm-hmm. unlike March and April, where we understood the safety and the emergency and we you know, we went along with it because, you know, again, it was an urgent situation. Now people are getting a little bit more tired of it. As we have this renewal. This renewal of a new year, new school year, etc. Uh, is is it possible for people to set aside the depressing part of the COVID situation and really get off to a good start? I don't think we set aside. I think we have to face reality. I remember in the earlier parts of my career when I worked with substance abusers, one of their lines was that drugs are for people. Who, I mean, reality is for people who can't handle drugs. Wow. Um, you know, uh, we have to deal with reality. And the reality, as you said, is that it's here, it's still here, and it's still impacting on our lives. Uh, so I don't think we can go into the new year and just make believe it was like the beginning of, of last year. But it doesn't mean that we have to be demoralized or hopeless or uh, walk around depressed. We have to face that reality, and then people have different ways of doing that and, and cope with it effectively. Well, I'll give you a, a, an interesting, I don't know if I call this a suggestion, but it's certainly something that's going through my mind. We all know that the world was closed uh, a Cholomoid Pesach, right? Everyone realized right. that there's no way that anything that resembles normalcy in terms of family get-togethers and trips and visits, etc., is not going to happen. I think now, even though, again, and I don't want to minimize the current situation, 
We all should be adhering to the rules. We all should be extremely careful. And we know that this thing is spreading, especially in our community. But I think people are still trying to be creative. They have an entire week of Cholamoid coming up. I think people are trying to think, you know, what can I do outdoors with my family? What adventure or hike can I take with them? And and I guess that would be the healthiest way of dealing with this, right? Uh, sure. Well, first of all, we're, we're more used to it. It's, we don't have that shock factor. We've had a few months, and people have shared, and that's one of the things that's been the, some of the silver linings that we've had is some of the enormous creativity, uh, which people come up with in ways of uh, socializing in a healthy way and, and having recreation in a healthy way. So I'm more at home, but I think the bigger problem is that it's almost like we had a taste of freedom. Uh, the summer, it was really... I wouldn't say it was gone, but it was much lighter, right. and many kids were able to go to camp, and we were able to have a, a summer that more closely resembles those that we've had previously. So we sort of had a taste of freedom, and now we're suddenly feeling more restricted again. It's much harder to go back to March and April than it was to sort of uh, plunge into March and April last year. Yeah. Dr. Norman Blumenthal is with us. You know, Dr. Halevi was with us yesterday from Shari Tzedek, and he said what did him in, and I think he used the expression was like a slap in the face to him, was his positivity. He really thought that, you know, we were past the the big hurdle, the way things like you just described, you know, during the summer, and that we probably wouldn't get into a very serious situation. Again, this is what he was thinking, and of course, we see what's happened in Israel. I mean, our brothers and sisters are in, are in total lockdown uh, for the holiday, which is, uh, and it's one thing, the, the, the Nissan holiday season is one thing to be locked down. Th- this one, of course, you know, causes, um, I think, a lot more anxiety when one is locked sure. down. So I- I- is it important to sort of, you know, play this mind game with ourselves, not to be overly positive, but to be realistic in thinking we really have no idea when this mm-hmm. is coming to an end. You know, sometimes it's hard for human beings to do that, to to program our minds to realize that we have no clue when this is going to end, and, and I have to be prepared if it's going to be many more weeks or months. Sure, sure. I mean, the, uh, our rabbi said it very succinctly in, in when they said in Simcha Kataros Asfekas that uncertainty, ambiguity, <laughs> in and of itself is stressful, and we're, it's fraught with ambiguity, this situation, even for the experts. Um, what we're recommending for people, that, that we, we find that there are two different types of people. There's some people that just sort of flow with the punches. Some people just sort of take the attitude, deal with it when it happens. They don't plan ahead. And, and that suits their personality. They're not right or wrong. And those people really, in a way, have to reference the past. Right. They have to reference that they were able to cope with things in the past, and whatever comes up, they'll deal with it. Some people are more future-focused. Some people need to know ahead of time what they're facing. And what we're recommending for them is make believe you have, like, five, six doors in front of you that, that play out all the possible scenarios for the next few months and be prepared for each one. It's like contingency planning, like they do in the business and in the military. And uh, be ready so nothing will be really a total surprise. Whatever comes along, you've sort of prepared for it. Uh, I just think that a lot of people can get past the first hurdle and often feel they can, uh, you know, meet up to the challenge of that, you know, that first traumatic experience as the whole world has experienced. And when it comes to the second or third, it just, you know, the ability to do so just gets, you know, more and more challenging. That's all. It gets more challenging, but uh, we have a lot of fortitude. Uh, my mother, may she rest in peace, was a Holocaust survivor with a treasure trough of Yiddish sayings. You say the men should be a yeah. uh, man's like a horse. And, uh, 
we, there's a lot we can cope with, and, and, and children in particular. I mean, children are remarkable in their adaptability. So I don't think we have to despair and think we're all going to have psychiatric breakdowns or just fall apart or something like that. Um, we, as human beings, and, and especially, I have to say, as Jews, with our, with our beliefs, we can handle a lot, and this will right. somehow or another end. No, nothing lasts forever. Yeah, I get that, but so, sometimes we find ourselves looking up to the heavens and saying, "Isn't it enough already? Like, like is it, <laughs> hasn't this yeah. hasn't this been long enough?" I, I, I've, I've said that. I've looked up and said that for less uh, imposing situation. <laughs> That's a very good point, <laughs> Doctor Norman Blumenthal, with us. All right, we talk about your work with OHEL. Uh, I, I, last time you were on, you described uh, some of the unique situations that you're getting. I mean, you're in touch with a lot of families who are, again, I keep using the word challenging, but are going through really difficult situations. Uh, in fact, f- frankly, in some situations, you know, you, you might surmise that the survivability of, you know, of, of, of family harmony is, is really, really, you know, being put to the test. Um, what, what, I mean, would, would that be accurate that, you know, that be, right. be, because of the, uh, the closeness that everybody's experiencing right now and because of the mm-hmm. different lifestyle that, that families have never had, uh, that they're now experiencing. Uh, I mean, the, the ability of a family to make it through and to do so in a peaceful, calm and understanding manner is, is, is more of a challenge. Absolutely. What, one of the things we're saying is what was will be more. So minor irritants will become major irritants. On the other hand, uh, resilience and strength that existed before will come out all the more so as well. Or family uh, harmony will will be greater. So what I think people have to anticipate is that what has preexisted and may have been of minor proportion is now going to become a major proportion that that is relevant to problems and potential friction as well as for strengths and uh, for com- you know close companionship and collaboration. What do you do about the uh, economic situation? It, it, people come to you and families say that you know that one of the things that's stressing them out and that's really you know playing such an important role in all this anxiety is finances. A lot yes. of a lot of people don't have jobs. We have a service here where we're literally asking people to just to send us resumes on the shot that you know we can match them up with an employer or have some luck in that. Just spreading the word around. Um, and you, frankly, you know, from your position, it's, it's not like you're you're not Secretary of the Treasury where you could predict to people, you know, when things are going to start improving. It must put you in a really delicate situation where you want to give them the confidence that 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 will turn around, but we have no clue when it will. That's right. That's right. And it's interesting that I really believe that those who have lost jobs um, or whose businesses are now faltering that it's not even so much the capacity to put food on the table. I think so far there's enough money around that people are, you know, are living in their homes and eating, right. but the blow to one's self-esteem and the worry about the future and, and uh, what will be, you know, uh, you know weddings, bar mitzvahs, uh, providing for this, providing for that, is uh, sometimes more corrosive than the actual limited capacity to purchase items. you have any idea what the... Um statistics are or can you give us a general assessment uh, a year ago you know you were dealing with x number of families through the work of ohel any idea w- where it'd be at now I don't have statistics, but uh, I can say that in terms of the impression, I'm, I'm just dealing with the trauma team. I'm not involved right. with the clinics and with right. the, uh, 
you know, the domestic violence uh, program, et cetera, although it was a very large operation, we've had our, we've had our hands full. But, but certainly the, the COVID-19 has dominated the trauma team. But we have other, unfortunately, we've had other situations as well. But the stress, we, 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 we just did two programs for widows. We've run groups for, we ran, I think, six groups for people who lost right. parents, four for adults and two for teens. It, it has really dominated the phone calls and the demands that are being placed upon us. Um, and we're learning as we go, because this is nearly unprecedented. Last time, So, you... so we're, we're learning from the seat of our pants. Last time you were on, we spoke about those unique Zoom sessions, as you just described, that you're doing with those unique groups, unfortunate unique groups yes. that are now yes, suffering. I, I got to ask you a question. Um, <laughs> Uh, we all talk about quarantine. It, it's the topic of the day, obviously, because you know people are either fearing going into it or are experiencing it, frankly. Um, and uh, very often, the most how do we put this? The most severe punishment for the greatest offenders in our community is solitary confinement. I'm not. Right. Com- I'm not comparing someone's bedroom. Where, where food is being delivered to them and they have an iPhone, I'm not comparing that to solitary confinement. But you can make the comparison, if you know what I mean. Uh, do, you yeah. sometime, do you sometimes worry that those experiences that teenagers and others are going through for a two-week period are going to have lasting effects? Um, the lasting effects, uh, there, there will be lasting effects from this whole event, but the lasting effects can be positive as well. Even, you know, we even, quarantine, from, even from quarantine. Mm-hmm. Even from quarantine. Well, well let's suppose, suppose the teenager is quarantined, and suppose he thinks his world is coming apart because to the teenager, very normally, the peer group is their world, right. and they somehow find creative and effective ways to transcend the confinement of their four walls and connect and relate, um, and are, uh, let's say, are even imaginative in the way in which they do it. They can have a greater understanding of what, let's say, the mind can do, or they can become a little bit more at home with themselves and right. uh, not feel so compulsive about having to be around others and appreciate that sometimes just being with yourself and thinking and reading and uh, growing, uh, you know, in terms of the understanding of life can be important as well. And they can take that with them even when there is no quarantine. So uh, yes. I, that's really what we're doing. We're mining and looking for those lessons that we can derive from the hardship. Tomorrow night, Zman Simchasenu. Tomorrow night, we have yeah. an obligation to be happy, literally a biblical obligation to be happy. Do you think we could do it? So it's very challenging. In fact, we just did a webinar last night. Uh, I spoke along with Ramosha Weinberger. I mean, I was clearly the tuffle, um, but um, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, about how to, how to do this. And I think just the very fact that we have to dedicate an evening to this, and that we had about 60 people listening shows how challenging that will be. There were, there were many ways of, of looking at it. I think one of them, which I, I, I proposed, and I think might be, but everybody has to find their own way. First of all, use your imagination. You know, we talked about, you mentioned the Spiesen before. I don't think there's social distancing from the Ovos. From <laughs> Not for the real Spiesen, right? <laughs> right. So we maybe we'll do a Spiesen with more uh, Kavana. We'll, we'll imagine who's at our table. We'll, we'll appreciate how important family members are because they're, they're not with us. The other thing is that, you know, one way of looking at it, and this is something both Roy Weinberger and I spoke about, is uh, Hashem's telling us something. Hashem's telling us this year, I want you just with your family. 
I, I want you maybe alone. Yeah. And uh, we're making that sacrifice for Hashem because that's what he wants. Or, and, and we're going to work on deriving simcha from fewer people. Um, and so, we, again, the mind is remarkable. The mind can do all sorts of acrobatics. And we're going to have to do a lot of them to achieve some level of simcha and also not beat up on ourselves if it's hard. And, it, and if a tear rolls down that cheek when we make Kiddush, because we have this big sucker with so many empty seats, uh, we're, we're human, and Hashem realizes this. So it's, it's something we have to work on, but we can do it. We can, we can derive a different type of simcha yeah. than we may have had previously. Look, the reality is we won't be as isolated as we were on Pesach, and I think that that is, that is uh, what do they call chatzinachama. That is somewhat of a comfort. That's true. Uh, that people, that's true. People, you know, it, it, th- those who... Uh, you know, th- those who had to stand uh, at a window to check on their grandparents, uh, you know, on Pesach, now this time, they, you know, things could be a little closer, a little different, you know, maybe pe- people could actually meet outside. I-, I guess we have to keep that mm-hmm. in perspective, that the situation, even though it is frustrating, is improving, and that's important yes, also. It is. Although everybody has to consult their physician. Everybody's right. health is different. Yeah, of course. Everybody's situation is unique, and just be careful. <laughs> No question about it. I, I wish you a Chag Sameach, and uh, I will re- I will recommend to our listeners that anything we've discussed today, and obviously the services you both alluded to and spoke about directly, are available through OHEL, and people can be in direct touch with right. them and, and, and take advantage of those services. Right, and copies of the webinars, even the one we did last night, will be available through the website if people weren't able to get on and hear more in detail. Uh, Rabbi Weinberger described ways in which we can derive simcha even during these difficult times. OLfamily.org for that video and a whole bunch of other videos and plenty of information. OLfamily.org, OLfamily.org. Dr. Norman, Norman Blumenthal is Director of Trauma, Bereavement, and the Crisis Response Team uh, at OHEL. Uh, Dr. Blumenthal, thank you so much and Chag Sameach. Thank, thank you for all that you do and have a Chag Sameach. <laughs> Appreciate that. Thursday morning broadcast, more coming up at JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Dr. Norman Blumenthal. Ziva Glanz was with us to remember Rabbanit Miriam Levinger, one of the heroes of Hebron of the Jewish people. Rabbanit Levinger was amazing. She passed away recently, and Ziva Glanz was on to discuss her life and her impact. Uh, here's that conversation on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, Ziva Glanz is going to join us in a minute. Uh, she's on the phone from Israel. Uh, we mentioned a couple of days ago that Rabbanit Miriam Levinger had passed away, many people don't realize how important a figure she is in modern Jewish history. Many people don't get it. Um, we're going to explore and, and tell you more about it. But, but Ziva sent me, before she comes on with us, she sent me an amazing synopsis of what happened back in 1979. I don't know why I thought it was so much earlier. I thought it was in the late 60s. It wasn't. It was uh, in 1979. And here's what here's what happened. In nineteen seventy-nine, this is Miriam Levinger writing this account. Miriam Levinger of Blessed Memory, uh, Rabbi Levinger's wife, uh, writing this account. In nineteen seventy-nine, we were a group of ten women and forty children who entered the abandoned Hadassah Medical Building in Hebron. Exactly fifty years had passed since the Jewish survivors of the nineteen twenty-nine riots had been expelled from this city. The government placed us under strict lockdown. Our husbands were not allowed in, and we were not allowed to leave. The conditions were dreadful. However, I had brought a safer with me that brought me tremendous comfort, entitled Shar HaChatzer. It spoke of Hebron's centrality and how Hebron was the key to all of Eretz Yisrael. Surely we never dreamed of a day where there would be thousands joining us on Cholomoed or a Shabbat Chayei Sarah like we have now. However, in our hearts we felt the righteousness of our mission. 
We are following the directives of our forefathers, Masavot Siman Labanim. Abraham acted quite deliberately when purchasing Hevron's Maratamachpelah, and for what was an exorbitant price, he too knew that the birthright established for his children in Hevron had spread to all of Eretz Israel, and he wanted to make sure it was one that was indisputable and everlasting. Hevron's centrality repeated itself throughout every stage of history, from God telling David that the eternal kingship of Israel must start in Hevron, to the Bar Kochva revolts, to modern times, when my husband, Rav Moshe Levinger, of blessed memory, knew that the post-1967 movement to resettle the biblical heartland of Judea and Samaria must begin in Hebron as well. Hebron's message is not one we could ever afford to forget, with the recent events in Gaza, Iran, and the whole world questioning our right to Israel. We must also hear God's message to us in these parshiot, that we must be steadfast and confident in our birthright. God wants us here. He wants his children to return. If not, we wouldn't continue to see the success we have seen in Hebron against all odds. It is a message that all of Am Yisrael must internalize, and one of the holy city of Hebron, the city of our mothers and fathers, comes to eternally remind us. Those are the words of Miriam Levinger of blessed memory who has passed away. Uh, she passed away just a couple of days ago. And Ziva Glanz, who um, is a coordinator of special investment projects in Israel and for many, many years under the leadership of the great Judy Grossman, was the associate director of the Chevron Fund and continues to work with the Levinger family, which we'll talk about in a minute. She is with us live via telephone. Ziva Glenn, Shana Tova, welcome back to JM in the AM. Shana Tova, Nachum. So humbled to be able to memorialize a political and religious figure like Miriam Levinger here with you. You know what's interesting, uh, and, y- and you've done this tour a million times, so you know the story very well. When you go back to 1979, she doesn't. Disc- the only thing she talks about is that one safer that she had with her brought her comfort. She doesn't discuss the conditions that the women. I believe some of the women were actually expecting, if I'm not mistaken, they were pregnant at the time. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 she doesn't describe the conditions. She doesn't describe the months. Am I right? It was months that they were secured in there and not allowed to leave. It, it was almost a year, and Miriam was a very humble person. So whenever anybody would bring up obviously the enormous historical impact that she had on Eretz Israel and Am Israel. She would always tell you that it was only because the kids were so excited about doing it, because she went into Beit Hadassah in 1979 with 10 women and 40 children. So she would say, no, it was because the kids were so excited, that's what gave us strength. Or she would tell you that, you know, I had it so easy. I had a chemical toilet when we went into Beit Hadassah, but the real pioneers were the ones who drained the swamps of Petachikva of malaria. She was a very, very humble person, but it cannot be uh, said enough that anybody who has prayed in Marta Machpelah, in the Cave of the Patriarchs, in Hebron in the past 50 years, anybody who's gone anywhere in Yudan Shomron, in Judea and Samaria, any Yeshuv that was created there was solely the direct responsibility of Moshe and Miriam Levinger, who led the whole Gush movement after the Six-Day War in 1967. They led the movement back into Yudan Shomron. And specifically, Miriam herself, it says, that because of the righteous women, and it was specifically Miriam Levinger leading these 10 women and 40 children back into Hedadasa, that is the reason why we still have Hebron today, and why anybody has been able to pray in the Cave of the Patriarchs, and anybody who will ever pray in the Cave of the Patriarchs is only there in her merit. And what you described in terms of her humility and in terms of her approach, as you've alluded to, she had the perfect partner, her by Moshe Levinger, exactly, you know, cut from the same cloth, so to speak, 
in terms of humility and in terms of the uh, understanding how vital this was in order to build Eretz Yisrael. Um, the, the, the whole idea, uh, you know, it's funny, we, we, we assign certain names to the growth of Israel over the last 100, 150 years, right? Modern Israel. Uh, we talk about Montefiore, Rothschild. Uh, we talk about uh, Moskowitz. I mean, names that are legitimate, legitimate names in the building of Israel. Levinger has to be among them, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. In fact, in 1987, I believe it was, there was a, a poll put out as to who was the most influential figure in Israel at that time, and Menachem Begin and Moshe Levinger, Miriam's husband, shared the top spot. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, the, by the way, these efforts, because it was interesting when I read Miriam Levinger's words to open up this segment, these efforts, uh, you would think, as they see what happens on Shabbat Chayi Sarah, as they see the tours coming through, as they see the activity at Marat HaMachbelah, and of course the growth in terms of people who now live in Hebron, you, you would think they might have been resting on their laurels. Uh, but as you described to me off the air, and I wish you would tell our listeners, they and their family continue until today uh, building Hebron and making it as strong a city as possible. Tell me what's happening now. So first of all, it's just amazing, because people talk about, obviously, uh, the contribution to the cloud, to the community that Mary Moshe Levinger made. People also have to mention they raised 11 amazing children, each of whom is a superpower in their own right. It's a who's who of leaders now in all of Judea and Samaria. But specifically in Hebron, the Levinger family, the children of the Levinger family, they have uh, an organization called Harchivi. It's led by Yirat and Udishar Bach, which is Miriam's son and daughter-in-law, by Malachi and Atarit Levinger, and also son and daughter-in-law, leaders of the Chevron community, Fadal Kobe, Miriam Fleischman, and they're the ones responsible for building and selling the apartments now in Beit Shalom, for purchasing and redeeming Beit HaMachpelah, for purchasing and redeeming Beit Rachel, Beit Leah. They have been the biggest force in terms of um, modern-day reacquisition of Chevron uh, for the past 10, 15 years again. So the Levinger family is continuing, everybody's continuing in, in their parents' shoes. They're continuing to make their impact. Miriam was involved literally up until the day that she passed away. Uh, she was active. She was the spiritual force. Uh, she was very involved with Daniela Weiss also throughout all of you done Shomron. She didn't stop for a second. And one of the most profound things that Miriam ever said to me personally is she said, I always know that I did something right when I see that there's three generations of my family now doing the same thing and living here in Chevron. Mm. Because that's how you know you did something right. And that always stuck with me. You know what's remarkable? Um, we as kids and then eventually as adults always heard stories and actually studied uh, accounts of great women in Jewish history and how so often it was the women who made the first move in a situation that ended up being, you know, one of great redemption, one of great success. I think personally, when Kever Rachel, and I'm sure you remember this, when Kever Rachel was in tremendous danger of being given away, a group of women literally went and slept, uh, had a had a rotation of people who stayed and slept overnight in tents as close to Kever Rachel as possible as a demonstration of support for Kever Rachel and its importance to Jewish families. And that, of course, you know, I believe was such an important part of what eventually ended up being, and Kever is not the same as it was to us who remember it the way it was, but at least it's still in Israel's hands. And, and here, the same exact thing. Miriam Levinger didn't just understand 
that we need a a pioneering effort in order to bring you know Chevron you know uh, to the forefront in terms of an issue. I think she also realized that when women and children are the ones who are leading it, it's going to be much more effective. Leaders in government will look at it differently and with a much more hopefully sympathetic eye or certainly with a different eye uh, than if, you know, if, if military men or those who are you know, ready to start fighting would be in there. And I think she realized that, you know, that, that, that this is one of the most important ways for women and children to be leaders, to show how important Hebron is and its future is to the Jewish family. What do you think? So I'll tell you just an interesting uh, tidbit of information that most people don't know, but it was actually Miriam Levinger that was a vital part of that core group of women from Hebron that also returned Kevin Rachelthas as well. <laughs> she sat in her chair on the road there, <laughs> and she wouldn't move until they opened it again. So people always focus on Hebron, but she didn't leave anybody behind. She had all the Avot and Imahot in her back pocket, and she, she fought for them all. And, so she was involved in that as well. And I assume, and in terms of Beit Hadassah, yeah. No, I was just going to say, and I assume the Levinger family 15 years ago was also very dedicated to the cause when it came to Gush Katif. Hugely. Again, if, if we could spend an hour talking just about the Levinger children. They are the heads of regional councils. They're the heads of organizations. They, they have famous names. Each one of them is a superstar in their own right. So they very much embody the legacy of their parents, and, and they learned it. Where they learned the teachings of a tree who to cook from their family. They learned this in their home growing up. And people also should know from your audience, Miriam grew up in the Bronx. So she came to this. She was 18 years old. She came to Israel. She knew no Hebrew whatsoever. She enrolled herself in nursing school with not a word of Hebrew. And look what she did. So it's really a legacy to be, to be honored. Unbelievable. We should get the Bronx Borough president to, to make a proclamation in her memory, although I have a feeling politi- <laughs> politically uh, the Bronx Borough president probably wouldn't want to. You were, you were going to add before about Beit Hadassah. What do you want to say? No, so I wanted to mention that, you know, it's such a moving story, the story of Beit Hadassah, for those people listening who are not familiar with it. You know, after the, the Six-Day War, so Moshe and Mary Lovinger, they decided they're going to move for Pesach into the Park Hotel in Chevron. No right. Jews were allowed in Chevron. From 1929, from the riots in 1929, there was a huge massacre, and anybody who survived was kicked out by the British. And they decided, we're going to make our little one step. And that was always the philosophy that they always said. They said, we're going to take our one little action, and God's going to do the rest. So they rented the Park Hotel, and then they decided to stay a little longer, and they didn't leave. And then the government moved them to an army base, and that army base ended up becoming Chariot Arba. And that still wasn't enough for them. They said, we have to go back to the, the actual biblical Chevron. And it was actually at the Shiva for a three-month-old baby named Avon Nachshon, the son of the famous artist Baruch Nachshon, that Sarah Nachshon, together with Miriam Levinger, decided, we're going back to Chevron. And in the middle of the night, they drove into Chevron under the guard of all the army, you know, under the noses, and they climbed in the back window of the Beta Dasa building, which had been a medical building for the community up until 1929. And the next morning, the soldiers woke up to Jewish children singing Veshavu Banim Ligvulam, that the children have returned to their borders. And the government didn't know what to do with these women there. And there was a special, uh, there was a special meeting that was put together in the cabinet. What do we do with the women and children of Beta Dasa? And a decision was made that they're going to wrap the whole place in barbed wire. Nobody goes in and nobody goes out. They were allowed to have supplies delivered twice a week. Their husbands were not allowed in. They had the most abhorrent conditions, and they made it work for almost a year. And like you mentioned earlier, there was a woman who went, in, who went in originally, she was pregnant, and she had to give birth, and she's in labor. And it goes all the way up to the prime minister, what to do with this woman who has to give birth from Beta Dasa. 
and they come back and they show her that she has special permission to go to the hospital, give birth, and come back. And she refuses to leave. And the soldiers are looking at her and they're saying, you know, what are you doing here? We've got to get you to the hospital. And she said, no, it doesn't say here that my baby can come back with me. And sure enough, they had to go back up to the Knesset and get special permission for the baby to come back as well. And that daughter was named Hadassah. And there's a story with one of the Levinger children, one of Miriam's children. He had a toothache. And he had to go up to the prime minister to get special permission for him to go and see a dentist for his toothache. So the conditions that they lived under were obviously treacherous, very difficult, but they persevered. And because of them, eventually, nine months later, the decision was made to allow Jews to return to Hebron. And that's how they built the Avravina neighborhood, the Beit Adasa neighborhood, Talumeda, and everything that we know today for the Jewish community in Hebron. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Uh, and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm sure you've thought of this. You're a spiritual person. I'm sure you've thought that she gets up there uh, in front of the one and only. One can only imagine the reward that she is uh, enjoying at this very moment. Not only that, she's the only person I could think of who they say that Hebron is the Petach the Ganeden. It's the entrance to Ganeden, that every soul goes through Hebron on its way to the Garden of Eden. And we know that the, the forefathers and foremothers, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and Sarah, Rivka, and Leah, they're buried underneath Hebron. Sure enough, I know, I know, because I know Miriam, she did not let anything go by. When she was on her way to Petach Ganeden, I know that she brought the Avot and Imahot with her, and I was thinking about it the whole funeral. And like they said at the funeral, one of her daughters said, make noise up there. Tell them how we're suffering like only you and Abba could do, like only you and our father could do. And I'm sure that she's the only one who could have brought all of the forefathers and mothers with her, because look what she did for them. She returned their children to their borders, and I'm sure now that they're all advocating together with her for God to do the same. Ziva, when was the funeral? Was it Tuesday, yesterday? When was it? Yeah, it was uh, right after Yom Kippur, the morning, 11 a.m. on uh, Monday Yom Kippur. On Tuesday she passed morning. away that, that evening. When did she officially pass away? On Yom Kippur or earlier than that? She was taken to the hospital on Yom Kippur night. Uh, it was very sudden. She wasn't feeling well. And uh, she passed away right after the end of Yom Kippur that evening. That, that also, as we know... And the funeral was the next morning. That also, as we know, is a tremendous privilege. I mean, to to have all one's sins forgiven and then leave this world. I mean, that that's not a coincidence when you think of someone like her. Not at all. Unbelievable. Ziva Glanz, helping us remember the amazing and incredible Rabbanit Miriam Levinger. Um, next time you're in Chevron, I hope that this conversation has helped in terms of making your visit even more meaningful with all the different things that Ziva just told us. Ziva coordinates special investment projects in Israel, works with the uh, Levinger children with Harchivi, reclaiming parts of Chevron and building the city of Chevron, and for many, many years was a... Um, Superstars, associate director of the Chevron Fund, under the direction of the ultimate superstar, the great Judy Grossman, who we know so well, and we send best regards to. Uh, Ziva Tadarabag, Martov, and thanks so much for doing this this morning. Thank you for everything, Nachum. More coming up. It's Thursday. It's JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Ziva Glanz about Rabbanit Miriam Levinger. Yehuda Katz, the wonderful musician, joined us recently, spoke about a brand new song he released. Uh, here's that conversation as it uh, was uh, conducted on JM in the AM here on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Wednesday morning, JM in the AM. Uh, many of you heard last week when we played the brand new Yehuda Katz single entitled Toda. He'll explain that to us in a moment. 
the story behind that song, and uh, we'll get to it, obviously, during the conversation. For those of you who are uh, JM and the AM aficionados, and Baruch Hashem, there are many of you out there, uh, you know that the Yehuda Katz has not only been somebody who's been a friend of this program for many decades, in addition to that, he played a role in one of the most important shows in the history of JM and the AM. Uh, when we had the opportunity, and by we, I mean uh, Simon Jacob and his family, Dr. Joe Rosazada and his family, and the Siegel family, because they included us, and I thank them for that, of um, dedicating a Sefer Torah for the uh, what we will call the Ethiopian Shul in Steyrot back in 2014, right in the midst of a difficult time, a really difficult time. Um, we asked Yehuda Katz, could you come along and 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 provide some some great musical spirit for everybody. And his answer in about a second was a resounding yes, and he provided for us such an amazing soundtrack. It's such an incredible day. Yehuda Shanatova Gamartov, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you so much. That was so beautiful. You know what I remember you know what I remember most about that day, by the way? Um, we went in, and I've spoken about this. I've spoken about this in speeches, and I've mentioned it on the air. I, I think I've even written about it. We're, we're getting a terrible feedback. If you're on a speaker, do me a favor and, and just pick up the phone. I don't know what's going on over there. What, what got me about that day was we walked in to the celebration at the Ethiopian Shul in Stay Road and said, this is going to be really awkward. We don't know any of their songs we don't know uh, yeah. anything in their liturgy, their tradition. You know, we'll be doing a Torah song or two, and, you know, it, it likely won't be what they would expect at their Safer Torah celebration. You start, you, mm-hmm. you start to play, and we discover that the Jewish people have more in common than Nahum Siegel thought because yeah. they, they wanted to sing the exact same th- songs that we wanted to sing for a Hachnasat Sefer Torah. And I remember that being a real symbol of Jewish unity that day. Yeah, yeah, that was so beautiful. It was a beautiful day, and, 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 and days like that of Vakdut of Israel. Yeah. We, we just so much need it. So true, so true. And what's interesting is that, uh, you know, I, I said you gave a resounding yes immediately, and some people might say, well, you know, Nahum Siegel, if you're inviting a musical performer to join you for a show, why not? If you recall, Yehuda, there were people who thought you and I and others were nuts to go to Stay Road at that time. But again, without hesitation, you said, we're going and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're going to show our brothers and sisters down there that we're with them. Anyway, as you could see, that day left quite an impression on me. <laughs> well, Hashem, so it did on me as well. It's funny because I was, uh, about a half hour ago, I thought, should I tell Nachum, wow, when's the last time we saw each other? <laughs> was that it? And that, was, that may have and been that it. that was exactly the last time we saw each that, other. That's, that's about, what that's I remember. About, that's about six years ago. Although I saw you and I told you what triggered my memory of you, uh, aside from when you sent me the song, then then I reconfirmed it, uh, was, was I saw you as part of that beautiful Shlomo Katz video that he did right before Purim time, I think it was. I think it was like at Motzei Shabbos Zachar, if I'm not mistaken, around that yeah, time. Yeah, it was, it was, I think, Rosh Chodesh I oh, and yeah. uh, I saw you and many others uh, on an amazing spiritual high. That's a, yet 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 another 
uh, a wonderful way to uh, to get together. And, and and we miss that. We miss that right now, getting together and uh, yeah. being together with the music. So 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 at this time, yeah, you released a song called Toda. And the way you when you contacted me, it sounded like this had a lot of meaning for you. Some might say, you know, since Purim time, <laughs> I get that there's stuff to be thankful for, but you know, it's sometimes a challenge to thank the one above for you know for challenging situations like the one we're in. So tell me the history behind this brand new single. Okay, so so during the during I think a couple of months into the after the beginning of of Corona, maybe a little bit after Pesach, I was sitting in my room alone and uh Hashem started to sing, I had a guitar, I started singing a couple of Nigunin came down and um one of the songs I knew immediately that I had to go to Hamutal Ben Zev, who's like one of the most accomplished lyricists in the country here, right. wrote a lot of hits for Eurovision. And um, I, I, I had to go to her and say, please, we need words. The song's about thanking Hashem for everything. Right now, we can't get distracted. We have to know that Hashem really loves us. We have to thank Him for everything. Let's write a song about it. And then she sent me back these amazing, beautiful lyrics. And uh, this is when this is like right after Pesach. When is this? Yeah, yeah. I want to say around. I don't remember the exact date. But the, re- the, the reason the time between Pesach and Yom Atzmo, The reason the, re- the reason I'm emphasizing that is because again, you know, this is. I mean, for worldwide jury, that was a really serious time. And I understand, and, of course. I said to her, I said, listen, we can't put aside for one second the pain. Terrible pain, losing lives, illness, people having to be quarantined, so many things. But we have to look at what is the source of what's going on in the world. And clearly, you know, it's easy for us to sometimes forget that it's Hashem's world. No question. And he gave us a big bracha, and 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 he said, okay, you could be in my world. Now make me a place that I could come be with you together. And so, I'm not saying I know any more than that, but one <laughs> thing was so clear to me that Hashem is calling out the Kol Ram, you know, with a loud voice, okay, everybody, I'm speaking to you. Tell me some of the points in the lyrics aside from thanks. Like, was there anything specific for, yeah. for this disease? Was there anything uh, special that was not just a regular thank you? Give us a, a taste or two, especially those of us who don't know Hebrew well. Give us a taste yeah. or two of what the lyrics are about. Okay, the one, one lyric that relates exactly to what you're talking about, we wrote, Even if it hurts, to me that we know that you always love us. Right. Right. And on everything that happens, we say thank you. And, and, and there's the thing. We know, look, it's a two-way street. Mm-hmm. We have to take part in this. We have to have a response. When somebody calls you, right, mm-hmm. they expect you to respond in some way. Right. Well, that response can't just be a knee-jerk reaction. There's a difference between a reaction and a response. A response is, okay, I hear where it's coming from. Okay, I have to say something in response. But the first thing that I feel I have to say is thank you. Yep. Thank you for putting me here. And then, we, then she writes, I'll call Masha, yeah. 
and then everything that will be in the future, we will pray and we're going to be strong. And whatever it's going to be, we say thank you. It's all from Hashem. It's interesting because, I mean, this theme obviously is one that we take very seriously. And the thanking the one above for everything, no matter what it might be, good or bad even, you know, is something that we emphasize our entire lives and thank God our parents and our teachers, our rabbeim all, you know, emphasize that. But boy, it sometimes becomes a challenge during a time like this. Especially, Big challenge so yeah. that we can't run away. We can't run away from it. We have to own it. And by, the, and by the way, boy, by the way, yeah, yes, go ahead. No, Sorry. I was, I was going to say, and remember when things start to flourish and things, you know, turn around because we know they will. That's the way it works, and that's the way he that works. Uh, yeah, we we need to remember to toda also. Sometimes we get a little a little haughty uh-huh. and think that you know we're responsible for all the good. We have to remember it's he who provides all the good. Right. Always easy easier to forget. Yeah. So, so what I wanted to say was, mm-hmm. but if you noticed in the video, in the YouTube video, yeah. the focus of the whole thank you is between people. Right. Good point. It's between the father and the son, it's right. between the old, older gentleman right. and his friend. It's between husband and wife. That, that Thank you. Why, why did we write the script that way? Because... The Nesiva Shalom, the, the Shalom Rebbe says in the Sefer Nesiva Shalom, Hashem is not interested in our love unless we first love each other. Right. He says that it's in, in Parshas, uh, in the Parsha of Hanan, about Rehafta Tashem Elokecha. So the two things go hand in hand, and we who have the Torah, not only receive the Torah, but we, 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 we study it, we learn it, in our living of it, in our application of our life, we have to be real about these two things. That's Yehud. why we put it out. Yehud. That's the reason we, we put this out to the world. Yehuda Katz v'hamagal, a song of thanks, Shir Toda, and we're going to play it for you, and it is available on YouTube, folks. You can literally search Yehuda Katz v'hamagal, a song of thanks, and you'll find Shir Toda, and we're going to play it obviously, to wrap up this conversation. I'm adding you to the list of people I need to reunite with when I finally get to Israel. <laughs> great, great. I can't wait to hug you. Where are you? Wait to hug you. Where, where are you hanging out? What, what city are you in now? I'm still in Tekoa. Wow. Still in Tekoa. How, how, many, years are you, how many years are you in Tekoa? We're in Tekoa, ten and a half years. Unbelievable. Has it grown, yeah, a, what a, what has a, it grown a lot in those ten and a half years? We came to a 319 families. Today, Baruch Hashem, there's over 1,000. Wow. People don't even realize the growth in that area. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing place to live. And we're really looking forward to receiving everybody, everybody who's listening, receiving everybody to come to Eretz Yisrael. Amen. Mamish everybody. Yehuda uh, Gmartov, Todaraba, and on the subject of Todaraba, we're going to play the song Shir Toda. Thanks so much, and Dashcham to everybody in uh, in Aretz. Okay. Okay. Chag Sameach. Look forward to seeing you. Thank you so much. And Chag Sameach, the great Yehuda Katz, on a Wednesday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. Shir Toda. Rakan, 
That was my conversation with Yehuda Katz, a uh, conversation about his brand new musical selection. Thanks so much for tuning in. Plenty more coming up. Same time, same place next week for JM Rewind. And now enjoy all of our great programming on the Nahum Siegel Network.